fair warning, this show contains strong language and adult themes from time to time. Sorry, Jerry can't help it. Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. It's your pal Jerry here, and I'm excited to tell you all about my thrilling new limited series podcast called The Halloween Conspiracy with Jerry Hara. In each episode of The Halloween Conspiracy, I delve into the backstory and history of infamous local urban legends, myths, and folklore, with stories that have haunted me my entire life, like the Montauk Project, the Amityville Horror House, Nikolai Tesla's Wardenclyffe Laboratory. I need you to tune in and help me get to the bottom of Long Island's biggest mysteries. Listen to this special three-part The Halloween Conspiracy with your host, me, Jerry Hara, starting October 1st, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your favorite shows. Your life may just depend on it. You've seen these guys at all the horror shows and comic cons. Now you can get your very own inked up merch, the finest in embroidered horror and sci-fi themed merchandise. From Lost Boys to Street Trash, from Chopping Mall to Cobra Kai, Inked Up has the best in embroidered beanies, baseball caps, and patches. Now they've even got their own Jaws-inspired Amity Island board shorts. You gotta take a look, these things are cool. Visit their Etsy store at etsy.com slash shop slash inked up merch. Are you looking to get your own printed or embroidered merch? Inked Up has been in business for over 10 years. Whether you're looking for merch for your band or you need crew logo shirts and hats for your first film production, you need some sick looking perks for your Kickstarter project, Inked Up can accommodate your needs with their custom silkscreen printing and embroidery services. Visit inkedupmerch.com and tell them Jerry sent you. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. This week on The Offering, the ball is back, boy. We're covering Phantasm 2. gentlemen friends beyond the binary it's me your host jerry hara and welcome to the offering a show where we discuss whatever the hell i'm in the mood to discuss yeah that's right i'm going through my peter falk era and i don't give a fuck so let's talk about some of the fantastic reviews that i've gotten well one of them's a review um again guys i told you if you leave reviews i will read them Go on iTunes. I don't know. Hit me up. Just leave a review. All right. I'll read it. Like, I'm going to read this one right now on the air again to a, a low budget show that is not a part of a major media conglomerate such as Bloody Disgusting or Fangoria. 
in case you're listening, I would do anything to be a part of your organization. Anything. I mean anything. Even light housework. Uh, M-R-K to the E. Five-star review. Jerry offers it all. This is an incredible podcast. It's an absolute delight to be invited into Jerry's incredibly knowledgeable mind on a regular basis. If you love content like I do, be it music, movies, TV, or more, Jerry has a lot to offer you. I love seeing what he'll dive into each week. Can you think of a better way to spend an hour? Do it. Just like Shia LaBeouf said, just do it. And Nike, Nike did that too. Thank you, MRK to the E. It sounds like kind of like an opening to like a MRK to the E. It's kind of like a Beastie Boys thing. There's a bit of alliteration there. Uh, Thank you. You know, again, we're independent. This is a mom and pop operation. (laughs) Mom and pop operation. Mom and pop, pop, pop. There was a weird alliteration that just happened that excited me. I'm sorry. Kangaroo meat. Kangaroo meat. That's the subliminal to get you uh, to go murder world leaders. No, I can't tell you how much uh, it means to me to get these amazing reviews. Like I said, not doing it for the money, not doing it because, you know, I do this because I love it. This is what I'm good at. I don't know. I can't do anything else. I tried being a stripper. I'm just not coordinated enough. I just don't have, you know, I kind of is equilibrium required to get on the pole. And like my uh, uncle who went to jail for many years, he said, once you get on that pole, you're not going to want to get off. We never saw him again. Got a really nice piece of artwork. If you go to my IG, which the kids say stands for Instagram, whatever, sure, (laughs) probably means drugs or something, am I right? Really nice email from Charles Christie. Hey, brother. I know it sounds like I'm blowing smoke up your ass, but I truly love the podcast and I genuinely believe in the work you are doing. As appreciation for all the hours of funny you provide me on my way into work, I drew this uh, piece of artwork up for you. So you can do uh, whatever you want with it and uh, please do so. I hope you love it. Signed, Charles Christie. Charles, thank you. This piece of artwork that embodies my disruptive spirit, he has turned me into a cartoon effigy, and it has everything from Candyman to Phantasm to Freddy Krueger, even good old Jason Voorhees. It really has captured my spirit, and I appreciate that. This artwork is absolutely phenomenal. You definitely got to, I mean, I can't do it justice. Thank you, Charles. It really means a lot to me. Hey, uh, hopefully you're driving into work, doing what you do. This guy's obviously a professional artist. He's a tattoo artist. So if I can help somebody and inspire their creative medium, I mean, that's it. That's why we do what we do. So Charles, MRK to the E, thank you. I appreciate the love. It's genuine. I'm feeling it. There is a ground swell reaction that is happening to this podcast and it's incredible folks every day every day we get a little bit stronger a little bit more powerful a little bit closer to the top of the apex that is genre filmmaking horror filmmaking 
all that good stuff, people are now starting to recognize. They're saying, hey, you got something here, Jerry. You're doing something. You're inspiring people. Maybe it's the chai latte, the pumpkin chai latte, my first of the season that's kicking in. Got a little bit of clarity. Or maybe it's just that all of these good folks who enjoy the offering, just like the Hulkamaniacs back in the 80s, giving the old Hulk Hogan, giving him that power to Hulk up. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. And I appreciate it. And you're only going to push me and make me stronger. And that is very dangerous, especially for you frat boy motherfuckers with horror podcasts out there. You're talking about, ooh, I don't like the fucking new Jordan Peele movie. Eat a dick. Nope was one of the best shit I've seen all summer. Look, I didn't think it was that great of a movie. I didn't. Well, it's a good movie. Nope is a good movie. I really enjoyed it. But it stuck with me. There are indelible images and things happening in that movie on many different levels. And it's original and it's different. And it made me think about things afterwards. If you haven't seen Nope, give it a shot. I mean, you're a fan of genre shit if you're listening to this podcast anyway. Yeah, man, there's good stuff out there. Been a great year for horror films. Been a great year. Just one after the other. Nope is so many things. It's a a study in sociology and science fiction just as much as it is a horror film. And perhaps even scrutinizes the very system that we worship, which is Hollywood. Shocking indictment of how the entertainment industry treats people, especially people of color. But that, my friends, it is a discussion for another time. We're not going to talk about it now, even though I'm tempted, even though I'm tempted to talk about it. Sometimes, just like anything else, this world will chew you up and spit you out. And that's okay. Because we have to find strength in the people around us that support us. Like the folks who write these fantastic reviews. Send me emails. Send me artwork. That is inspiring to me. I didn't get into this shit for the money. I didn't get into it because, oh, wow, the podcasting world is just a plethora of pussy. I mean, shit, lock the gates. Marin took it all. He's got all the groupies. I got to wait for Marin to die just so I can get laid? What's that? What's that about? Mark, you can't spare any pussy? What the fuck? Come on, man. Seriously. Guy goes on glow, gets to sniff Alison Brie, and next thing you know, he's doing more than me. He even got to star opposite Robert De Niro. I mean, look, he was a stand-up comedian, okay? But Marin has taken this shit to the next level. So now that he's moved out of that spot, maybe I can kind of sneak in, get a little in there, and you know, maybe... I don't know, have Alison Bree slap me or something. Or tell me what a pervert I am, and Jesus Christ, nobody listens to podcasts anymore. They're on YouTube or Twitch streaming, watching some asshole talk about something they don't know anything about. But hey, you're here with me, so who cares, right? Doesn't matter. Yo, the real story here, though, is that the making of Phantasm was fucking epic. Unfortunately... Phantasm wasn't made in 1988, but a little film named Phantasm 2 was. 
So we're going to be discussing some of the uh, finer points of how this film was made. And uh, let me put it like this. Boy, the ball is back and Jerry is on the ball, baby. Maybe an eight ball, maybe some Adderall, maybe some mysterious substance you sent me in an envelope and I snorted. Who knows? But one thing's for certain. I've had my first pumpkin spice chai latte of the season. It's got me open. I'm ready. We're going to do it. We're going to take you back to 1988. Get in the time machine. Pop the popcorn. Make sure you got the sweet tarts. Let's get it popping, folks. Let's go. was 1979 Don Coscarelli was 24 years old when his first film Phantasm hit screens and let me tell you something this movie changed the game Phantasm is a trippy and surrealistic film that captures the dreamlike state in which even Wes Craven kind of was able to to certain degrees but if, like, all right, listen, if you haven't seen Phantasm, just stop this right now and get on it because it's a masterpiece. It's one of those films. Surreal horror is hard to do. You could say that Rosemary's Baby is a bit surreal in some of uh, the way it's executed. You could say Wes Craven's Serpent and the Rainbow, another one that kind of gets surreal. But there is this weird dreamlike trance state this transcendence of cinema that Phantasm hits that no other movie could possibly ever live up to at this point. I mean, look, there's new movies being made every day. And uh, I'm a champion of independent cinema, and I think somebody will eventually knock it out of the park. But whatever Coscarelli tapped into at the precious age of 24 years old, I mean, can you imagine that? You've got this movie, and it's independent made for damn near $300,000 Phantasm was made for and it's a huge hit and pretty much Don Coscarelli becomes the new it boy as far as horror is at that time and everybody's like this guy is gonna be I don't know the next big thing so you gotta double down and say to yourself alright well Got this big hit movie that cost 300 grand, much like John Carpenter's uh, Halloween, which was made the year prior. What do I do? Well, like any good businessman, any good artist, it comes down to the simple fact of why don't we make a sequel? So Don Coscarelli goes on. He basically makes up a one sheet poster and says, Phantasm 2 coming in 1980 well wouldn't you know the time rolls around Don Coscarelli's got a big problem and the big problem that he has is he doesn't have an idea for a sequel and uh considering you just made a teaser poster for said sequel now it's not going to be an independent film Universal Studios wants to pick it up they say hey we're going to option this second movie Coscarelli says, fantastic. I grew up, I I loved all these universal horror films. I I grew up with their products, you know, their films. 
It would be an honor to have the Phantasm II sequel made at Universal in 1980. Well, unfortunately, that didn't happen. (laughs) He suffered severe writer's block. He didn't know where to go with the story. I just don't have an idea. I just don't think I know what this second film is about. And Phantasm wasn't just like, okay, it's this underground cult classic to a degree that just kept playing and playing. It's respected like critically, like Roger Ebert loved this movie, loved Phantasm. A lot of other critics did too. Some people say it was like the high watermark of that year. Some folks will even tell you that it's one of the greatest horror films ever created. The problem is when you're 24 years old, it starts breathing down your neck. How am I going to top what I just did? Well, he couldn't. So Coscarelli decides, all right, I'm going to go do something different because I do not have an idea. Now, remember, Universal had optioned a sequel. And once he signed whatever that obligatory deal was, at some point, he was going to have to make Phantasm 2. In the meantime, he makes a movie called The Beastmaster. It's a classic. I love it. And The Beastmaster is definitely a stay tuned. We might be covering that in the future because the story of the production of Beastmaster is just insane. He had signed on with a couple of different producers and some people that were connected to Dino De Laurentiis, famed Italian producer. And one way or another, they were just not happy with what they were seeing with Beastmaster. So like the movie's been cut like three different times like three different versions of it. They just released a new Blu-ray 4K set that came out that has collected as much of the unseen stuff that we never got to experience as fans of the film. Ultimately, he toils away, and Beastmaster was this great opportunity that kind of turned into a nightmare. So he ends up spending like almost two and a half years of his life making Beastmaster and then having the producers not want to put it out. Ultimately, it becomes kind of like this cult classic. If you had TBS in the 1980s, they played it like every night for what seemed like five years. It was on constantly on cable rotation. So he does a music video for Dio in 84. So basically, Coscarelli is just toiling away. He really doesn't have anything on the horizon. He's a guy who made this cult favorite movie went and tried to make a sword and sorcery movie that was just an absolute nightmare, directed a Dio video, the last in line, and he's just saying to himself, like, what the fuck am I doing? And wait a second, he has an idea. I I figured it out. I figured out how this is going to work. Okay, so this is his complete idea for Phantasm 2. What if it just started right where the last one left off? I mean, like, right where it left off and just, you know, kept it going. Okay, well, we got an idea now. Goes, knocks on the door of Universal. Says, remember when you guys licensed the, op- <laughs> the, uh, the option to make Phantasm 2? I'm ready to cash that poker chip in. Phantasm. The delusion of a disordered mind. A phantom. A spirit. A ghost. For ten years... The secret of Paragord Cemetery has remained a mystery. Now, three innocent people are about to discover the ultimate evil 
You think that when you die, you go to heaven. You come to us. Phantasm 2. It's only a dream. It's a dream. No, it's not. Folks, welcome to 1988. Released July 8th of 1988. That's pretty cool. Phantasm 2. $3 million budget, which again, we talked about the first film had a $300,000 budget. So this was 10 times the amount that the original cost. This was the lowest budgeted film Universal produced in the 80s. Did pretty well, too. Made $7.3 million. And that's a sizable hit. And we know what it's going to do on home video. We know it's going to play on cable forever. And and this is the crazy thing. The film was largely greenlit over at Universal. Even though they had the distribution rights, it was greenlit and financed by Universal, mainly because one of the main executives at the studio was just a big fan of horror movies. And he was also Don Coscarelli's former attorney. So isn't that... It's who you know, folks. It's who you know. This is a crazy story, how this all got made. At this point in time, like I said, we've talked about the $3 million formula. Now, to Coscarelli, you're basically being given $3 million, and you can write your movie, you can make your movie, and it's more money than you've ever had. This is also the most money that was ever applied for any of the further Phantasm adventures. Yes, there were a lot more Phantasm movies. Hot take, the first two are great, the third one's okay, and the rest are kind of garbage. Sorry, not sorry, folks, that's my take. Uh, This movie, this film series peaks with the second film, unfortunately. Universal Pictures wants a new franchise. So it's 1987, and they're saying, like, look, man, Fucking what the fuck is Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors? I don't know what it is, but New Line Cinema just made like $100 million off of this movie. Really? Yeah, it's Friday the 13th movies are making money too. Wow, I I guess we should get a franchise. Now, it's kind of strange to think, but Universal, they had a couple of hits here and there. But largely, after the disappointment that was John Carpenter's The Thing in 1982, they kind of veered away from the slasher genre of the day, some of the more supernatural films. And I will say this, 1979's Phantasm is a precursor to Wes Craven's 1984 Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm not saying it's inspired by, but I think there were certain elements that might have bled into that film. Just saying, if you got some time, watch Phantasm, and then double bill that with Nightmare on Elm Street, you might see some some things that kind of seem the same. Just saying. I know it's not what you want to hear, that your beloved horror icon Wes Craven might have borrowed a little bit. Well, he didn't borrow anything, really. In actuality, storyline-wise, it's not like that. Tone. Surrealist tone. What is in the mind's eye? What is real? What is unreal? What's a dream? What's a nightmare? 
Maybe the greatest nightmare of all time is just the existence that we lead day to day. One way or the other, Universal Pictures wanted a hot slice of that hot horror pie in the 80s. Yeah, people were making money hand over fist, and they weren't spending a heck of a lot of money to do so. Hey man, the same year, believe it or not, as this was getting made, so was They Live, which we also covered this season. And that was a part of this whole deal that Universal was like, we'll give you $3 million. And they had a formula, not unlike today's Jason Blum. He has a formula for his Blumhouse pictures of profitability. And $3 million was this magical equation for them to spend that would net them the greatest profit yield, be able to sell it internationally, be able to sell it on home video, and eventually to the burgeoning cable industry. Truth be told, the first Phantasm was hard to find. Came out on Betamax early on, then came out on VHS, but it was an independent movie and he didn't have the distribution. With that being said, Phantasm rarely played on television. So it became kind of this cult thing that lived on through midnight screenings throughout the country, throughout the world. So in other words, Phantasm was the underground king and it was a bit undisputed for quite some time. But you have to imagine, Phantasm, the first film, fits into this weird timeline. You've got Halloween in 78, Phantasm in 79, and then Friday the 13th in 1980. So a masterwork of surrealist horror, gothic horror perhaps if you want to, if you will, is not the flavor of the day. The flavor of the day is, let's get some sexy teens, let's get them murdered, Agatha Christie the style, because Friday the 13th is really just, is the sleazy exploitive ripoff of Halloween. You know, John Carpenter's like a real filmmaker. Sean Cunningham just had a title. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know, he took out the full page ad on uh, Variety. Scariest movie ever made. He didn't have a script. <laughs> All he had was a title and it worked. So you know what? I respect John Carpenter as a filmmaker and I respect Sean Cunningham as a master of titillation, sales, and hype. But one thing that Sean Cunningham had was Tom Savini. Fantastic special effects, pulled off all those magic tricks. Halloween left a lot to the imagination. Virtually bloodless in some ways, believe it or not. And that would escalate because Universal, in 1982, would produce Halloween 2. It took four years to get there, but at that point, again, we talk about sequels, we talk about escalation, there had to be gore. So there were a lot of reshoots with Halloween 2 to put in more gore. So, while everybody's trying to make a dollar and a cent in this industry, they're making quickie slasher ripoffs. Because what happens is, it's like a VHS. You make a copy of a copy of a copy, and it eventually just degrades down to nothing. And that's ultimately what happens until 1984, where we have A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is a new take on the slasher genre. And while this is all happening... Coscarelli's had this terrible experience with Beastmaster. So now, finally being able to get the funding, $3 million, holy shit, that's a lot of money. Fantastic. He was ready. He's like, all right, I've been kicking myself in the ass saying, why couldn't I make this happen? Why couldn't I get my franchise going? 
And on the same token, Universal had tried different things as far as the horror and science fiction genre. They were looking for their next franchise, and they just, for whatever reason, they, they couldn't find it. Ultimately, they would in a roundabout way, because MGM would make Child's Play in 88. And then in 1990, MGM sells the rights to Child's Play to Universal, and thus Chucky becoming a Universal monster. But before that, they were just trying different things. Like, for instance, the aforementioned being shot at the same time, John Carpenter's They Live, which is more of a kind of a weird, surrealistic take on the whole Twilight Zone style. You know, there's just as much science fiction, there's action, it's kind of a Western in a weird way. But meanwhile, Coscarelli's trying to get this sequel underway. He's been greenlit, he's been given the money, but that's just the beginning of his problems. Writer-director Coscarelli says that he had been under pressure to film a sequel, but he couldn't come up with that story. Coscarelli considered the first film's ending to be conclusive, and he did not feel knowledgeable about writing sequels. But now he was ready, and now he had Universal's blessing, and their money. But, like I said, he had that breakthrough, and he realized, wait a second, I'm just going to start this movie the second Phantasm ends. And he says, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. He says, I like road movies. You know, I like all the road movies because we're coming off the 70s. And he says, all right, I'm going to throw in this element where Reggie and Mike can combat the tall man, after which he described the process as straightforward. So once he had the roadmap, he wrote the screenplay like super quick. Like it, it was done in like two weeks. In the nine years between Phantasm and Phantasm II, Reggie Bannister, plays Reggie in the film, he had quit acting. He basically started working at a funeral home, and uh, he was assisting in embalming bodies, which would be fantastic, because the tall man, is uh, he's a bit of a, a funeral homekeeper himself. An interdimensional one, but nonetheless. So A. Michael Baldwin plays Mike, in the original Phantasm. Universal wasn't too hot on him because uh, they felt, well, we need someone who's working in the industry. We don't, we, we're going to recast this part. And this is where it begins to dawn on Coscarelli because at that point, the last movie he made was almost six years ago. And other than that Dio music video, he didn't have the pull in order to force Universal's hand to do what he wanted to do. So the casting of James LeGros as Mike has had a conflicted effect on the cast members. LeGros reportedly enjoyed his time on the production and got along very well with the cast and crew. And nowadays, Don Coscarelli, Angus Scrim, who's the tall man, Reggie Bannister, they all speak glowingly of the experience working on Phantasm Two. A. Michael Baldwin who played the original character Mike, who got recast in this film, he's still bitter about the incident. In the audio commentary for Phantasm Three: Lord of the Dead in 1994, he twice referred to Phantasm Two as the film that shan't be named and has stated in multiple podcast interviews that he considers it a terrible movie. I don't think so. I think Phantasm Two is great. James LeGros as the recasted Mike in this movie, I get it. 
They wanted a, a young, handsome, working actor. That was the way, you know, studios were still run a certain way up until the late 90s. And they had these, you know, contract players and people that they were working with, people they were trying to develop. And it's kind of a crazy story as far as the whole James Legro thing goes. So James Legro goes on to be in like Drugstore Cowboy, a ton of television, a ton of indie films, even goes on to do some directing of his own. I thought he was fine in this movie. I get it. They wanted somebody who was a little more seasoned as an actor, someone who looked a little more matinee idol. And I understand why Universal wanted James Legro. Producer Pete has just told me that James Legro uh, appeared in Point Break. This guy's got a huge career. Are you looking at some of this stuff? He was even on the Mosquito Coast television show based on the Harrison Ford movie. <laughs> Coscarelli has revealed that some of the elements of this movie were influenced by Stephen King, especially a few aspects of his novel, Salem's Lot. A small part of it at the end, where the characters go on the road chasing down vampires, gave him the idea for this movie, where Mike and Reggie are chasing the tall man. And I mean, look, it is what it is. It, uh, Salem's Lot had been developed into a successful television movie, it's recently been remade. It was supposed to come out this Halloween, but for whatever reason, because of everything going on at Warner Brothers, it's been pulled from the schedule. Maybe at some point in 2023, you might see the new version of Salem's Lot. But until then, and it's just locked in a locked in a vault over at Warner Brothers, along with Batgirl and all the other movies. Did I tell you guys they remade Lost Boys? Yeah, they they it's it's done. It's in the can features a bunch of younger actors. They went all Stranger Things on that ass. Again, another Warner Brothers project that we don't know what's going on with. So they've got not one, but two remakes of vampire films, and they're just sitting around, rotting somewhere in a vault. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. BuzzFeed's top 20 haunts nationwide. Dark Night Halloween World featuring the retro haunted Halloween trail and the 3D Psycho Asylum. 10 out of 10. Very scary. I recommend it. Get your tickets at darknightli.com. Dark Night Halloween World. So much fun. It's scary. Now, the most definitive account of the films made by the most infamous and influential studios of the 1980s, Canon Films. The Canon Film Guide Volumes 1 and 2 gives you the true stories from the people who made them, and truth is stranger than fiction. From American Ninjas to Masters of the Universe, from Charles Bronson to Chuck Norris, from Bloodsport to Texas Chainsaw 2, take it over the top on your Superman 4 quest for peace. These books have got it all, folks. A passionate journey through the highs and lows of pure 80s goodness. The Canon Film Guide illustrates all the behind-the-scenes mayhem of one of the most beloved cult movie factories of all time. We at The Offering highly recommend these books. They are essential reading for any and all film buffs. The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1 and 2, available now at Amazon, iTunes, or wherever finer books are sold. If you like vintage and retro style, you'll be shopping at these two shops, Paper Doll Vintage Boutique and Paper Doll Curiosity Shop, 
Long Island's premier shops for vintage, retro, gifts, and more. Paper Doll Vintage in Sayville has all one of a true kind vintage clothing and accessories for the true vintage lover, while Paper Doll Curiosity in Patchogue carries retro novelty gifts, toys, clothing. They've got something for everybody, got something for the whole family. You want the credentials? Paper Doll Vintage Boutique has won first place in Best Vintage Clothing Store in Long Island Press's Best of Long Island, seven years in a row, undefeated. Can your vintage and retro store say that? I'm going to tell you what, probably not. Because of the unique nature of the items sold there at both stores, the shop has become a local hub for artists, the community, hosting monthly art shows, classes, events, and even fashion shows. You got to check this out. You got to come down. You got to see it. From theme party goers, theater stylists, companies, photographers, designers, all facets of the industry. How about that period film project? You know, the one that you've been thinking of that needs authentic wardrobe and props? Paper Doll Vintage. Paper Doll Vintage Boutique and Curiosity Shop specializes in distinctive items that are hard to find anywhere else. One of a kind. One of a kind. And you are one of a kind and you deserve that. ShopPaperDoll.com and express your personal style. Listeners and fans of The Offering can get their hands on their very own The Offering with Jerry Hara merch, now only at Tee Public. Find your own fresh The Offering with Jerry Hara high-quality merchandise, including t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, long sleeves, stickers, and mugs. Just like the show, we've got gear that's mostly horror, always genre. The Offering with Jerry Hara Tee Public Store has everything you need to represent your favorite podcast. Folks, head on over to teepublic.com right now and pick up your very own Offering Tea today. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. Got a question or a story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at jerryhara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at jerryhara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcast, and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. Okay, so we're assembling the squad here. We got Greg Nicotero and Robert Kurtzman, later of KNB FX, legends. I mean, come on, what haven't they done? You should know these guys' names. They did everything like from dusk till dawn. All the way to like now, you got Nicotero, who's been doing The Walking Dead for so long. But they've done. Look, if you don't know who KNB effects are, you shouldn't even be listening to this podcast. You lost your uh, card carrying membership to the offering. Now, this is the only installment in the Phantasm series that doesn't include the original entire main cast. Bill Thornberry and his character did not appear in this film, and the only one to recast a main character with another actor. Universal forced Coscarelli to recast the character of Mike, and fans were kind of pissed about this happening. Some people say it was A. Michael Baldwin going on the convention circuit and saying, hey, this is a sham of a movie. They recast me. And there's obviously been bad blood, even up until today. In the year of our Lord 2022, A. Michael Baldwin is still pissed about this all these years later. In an interview... Reggie Bannister said that LeGros' casting was initially controversial among hardcore fans, but has become more accepted. And a little actor by the name of Brad Pitt originally auditioned for the role of Mike Pearson, and he almost got it. 
but it didn't work out. But it kind of did, because if you've seen Brad Pitt's filmography, losing Phantasm 2 might have been the best thing that ever happened to the kid. It's kind of one of these things. A lot of people say the narrative of Phantasm 2 might sound absurd and ridiculous, given what it's about, but the feelings of dread and anxiety that we get while we watch it are very real. This is a beautifully shot film. If you can, go buy the two-disc set. You get Phantasm 1 and Phantasm 2. WellGo USA put it out. That is the Chinese company. They do a lot of distribution for Canada, as well as what's left over from the Hong Kong cinema scene. You know, at this point, they're distributing uh, so many different kinds of films, but they have the international rights. So right now, you could probably go on Amazon as of this recording and get it for like 15 bucks, which is a pretty good deal. Both films on Blu-ray with all the special features, pretty good. Well, wouldn't you know, we got to get back to that $3 million. Mm-mm-mm. That $3 million came at a price. And uh, that price was Universal Pictures trying to control every facet of the production of Phantasm 2. Now, Coscarelli admits to the following direct influences by Universal during the making of the movie. The illusory style of the first movie was discouraged. Don't make it surrealist. Don't make it trippy. We want a more linear plot line with voiceover narrations of various characters. You got to do this. That's the way it's got to be. No dreams by characters were allowed in the final cut. We don't want any of that Nightmare on Elm Street bullshit. We want everything that you see on screen to be happening. So, okay, well, we've got a different movie now. This is not going to be what Phantasm was. This is going to be something different, you know, as much as it can be, even though it still is the sequel. A female lead had to be added as a love interest for the character of Mike. There were no two ways about it. This character did not exist, but apparently they made it happen. Actress Paula Irvine was cast in the part. Universal executives wanted to recast both A. Michael Baldwin and Reggie Bannister because they were unknown and had been out of the movie business since the release of the first movie. Both of these guys hadn't acted in nine years. I get it. I totally get it. Reggie Bannister is a fan favorite because he's like a real guy. He made this cult hit movie and then worked in a morgue. Truth is sometimes stranger than fiction, folks, and this is definitely one of those cases. Coscarelli resisted their efforts, as far as Universal was concerned, and was forced to audition A. Michael Baldwin and Raji Bannister for this opportunity to reprise their roles. In the end, his efforts won him a concession. He was allowed to keep one of the two, but had to replace the other. Coscarelli chose to keep Bannister and cast James Legros in Baldwin's place. Again, James Legros has gone on to have this fantastic career. Producer Pete was telling me he's in Point Break. He's uh, he's one of the presidents. He gets he's the one who gets shot, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Don't they all get shot? Well, I mean, Patrick Swayze doesn't get shot. He goes out on his own way in his own terms. And the, uh, spoiler alert, the ocean swallows him whole. Or did it? Nah, it totally did. You know, I just really, as a side point, that Point Break remake was terrible. What a horror. 
<laughs> There's some movies you just can't remake, and Point Break is definitely one of them. We're going to find out if Roadhouse is the other. Coming soon with Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, yo, so I really have to go into this side story just super quick. J.J. Abrams calls, and this is just flashing forward. I, I just have to get this off of my chest. J.J. Abrams calls Don for a 35-millimeter print of Phantasm. And Don's like, yeah, he's like, I would love to give you the one I have, but it's kind of shitty. And J.J. Abrams is like, it's kind of shitty? What do you mean it's kind of shitty? He's like, it it needs to be restored. He's like, I I just don't have the money to do it. Now, J.J. Abrams is infamous for having some really sweet Halloween programming, Halloween parties, where he has a bunch of friends over to his movie theater. And when he heard this, he said, this is ridiculous. So he put up his own money and independently financed to have Phantasm completely restored. It's beautiful. They've put it on 4K. And you can thank J.J. Abrams. So next time you make fun of that lens flare guy or the guy who might have destroyed modern Star Wars or, you know, whatever, he, uh, he restored Phantasm back to its glory. So... We all have to be very thankful for J.J. on that. Look, Coscarelli was not going to win this fight with Universal. There was no way because it wasn't his money anymore. He was nobody. And the worst part was, was that Coscarelli felt like a nobody. While he saw a lot of his peers at that time, he had had this huge hit being a young man. And now, here we were eight years later. He's no longer the 24-year-old wonderkin. He's 32 years old, and whatever Universal says, whether it's how high, it doesn't matter. They got to do it. He's got to do it. He has to execute whatever it is that they tell him. Now, luckily, Don Coscarelli had a really good friend who you might know as Sam Raimi. Yes, that's Sam Raimi from Evil Dead. He visited the set on more than one occasion, And uh, there's even this scene where you see the tall man chopping up a bunch of bones over by an urn, and the urn says Sam Raimi on it, and that was their little tribute. Uh, I gotta say it again, this is such a gorgeous movie. Watch it again, it is shot, like all the stuff that's in there, because a lot of the style that you see, I don't, I mean, like, yeah, there's, there's there's a bit of similarity Obviously, they were coming up at the same time, uh, Raimi and Coscarelli. It became one of these things, but uh, I think for... Look, it's arguable. Sam Raimi might have helped them out a little bit. Look, this is not a Toby Hooper, Steven Spielberg situation again, but Raimi definitely stepped in and helped him with some of the shots, lent some of what he had learned off of those Evil Dead films to parlay into Phantasm. <laughs> It's funny because uh, what they actually do in the movie, one of the Undertakers can be seen filling the plastic bag that's labeled Mr. Sam Raimi with ashes. And that was a nod to Ash in the Evil Dead series. Now, a special version of the final dialogue exchange, which is like the end of the movie, was filmed exclusively for the theatrical trailer and television spots set inside of the mausoleum instead of the hearse. This way, the dialogue could be featured in advertising and still not spoil the ending of the film itself. I got to tell you, for a 10-year-old little Jerry Hara, the 
commercials were unbelievable for this movie. Like when I saw the trailer for this, I had never even seen the original Phantasm because like I said, it wasn't readily available. Uh, my video store didn't have it. They just, it was one of those things where like, like I said, it came out on beta. It had a VHS run, but it wasn't widely available as much as you would think it was. So it was kind of hard to get your hands on a copy of it. I didn't know what the hell Phantasm was, but when I saw the trailer for this movie, I was like, holy crap, I got to see that. That looks amazing. All right. So one thing that I got to talk about, this movie has an entire house exploding into flames. And you know the scene that I'm talking about. Uh, If you don't, you really need to see this movie. Come back, stop the podcast. And, you know, I should never tell you that, but you really should have seen Phantasm 2. If you're this far into the show and you haven't seen it, that's on you, man. I'm sorry. So a sequence involving an entire house exploding in flames was filmed using a real house, which was in the path of California 105 Freeway. The production company bought the house for $500 from the state of California under the condition that they would move it from the site once they were done doing what they did. The original house was one story, but a second story was added to match the house of the first film. And that's a hell of a way to open a movie. Like, hey, look, here's the the house from the first movie, right? Remember, we're going to blow it up. Okay, that's pretty cool. You know, I'm down with it. So a safety officer was sent to supervise the stunt and kept restricting the amount of explosives due to the fact that the house was near an airport. And they were afraid that with all the jet fuel and everything going on, it would cause a massive explosion. So the safety inspector goes to Coscarelli and he says, hey, what is this scene being filmed for? And he's like, oh, it's Phantasm 2. And he says, this is Phantasm? Oh, shit. Blow the hell out of it. I fucking love that movie. And he allowed him to use as much explosives as they desired. The house was rigged with primer cord, mortars, black powder bombs, and plenty of gasoline. And then it was completely blown up. The sequence was shot with six cameras and was tightly choreographed with Angus Scrim, Reggie Bannister, and Laurie Lautlin doubling as a young Mike. Yes, that Laurie Lautlin. Um, Because they needed someone that would mirror Mike in the first film. And obviously, you know, he wasn't... (laughs) The same actor was not in this film. So they needed someone that looked kind of like a young boy... And the closest they could find was Full House's Lori Laughlin, who was basically inserted for like this one shot as uh, the back of Mike, which is just young Mike in this because it's a flashback from Hop Hog. We grew up in Hop Hog and uh, Lori Laughlin, she was always going to church at the St. Thomas More, which was the same church that my mom went to. And uh, I remember seeing her there, you know, around the holidays and stuff. And uh that's it. That's my, that's my brush with Lori Lachlan. How exciting. Not really. It also doubled as Reggie's house when the tall man kills his family by blowing up the home later in the film. Afterward, the production company kept their word and removed what was left of the house. Now, on the record, off the record, from what the reports were, the explosion that they created with this fabricated home it was like way over the legal limit of what you can use as well. Like it was like super dangerous. The safety inspector being a fan of the film 
obviously didn't help. Well, it helped because it looks great. What's even great in that sequence too is like Angus Scrim is the tall man and you see him and he's got the action hero shot where, you know, the explosion happens behind him. And Angus Scrim is such a fucking good actor that he completely no-sells it like nothing is happening and is so calm and smooth. I gotta say too, I love the first Phantasm, obviously. But Angus Scrim is the tall man in this movie has such a specific sense of confidence, menace, and I want to say swagger that the tall man should always be up there in the conversation with your horror greats, your horror icons, you know, whether it's Candyman, whether it's Jason Voorhees, whatever you want, you know, Angus Scrim is just a class act. He became one of these guys who was just like at every Fangoria weekend of horrors, he became a staple within the entire scene. And that, to me, is just incredible. Yeah, ultimately, though, Coscarelli gets this movie made, and it does pretty well. You know, it comes out in theaters. It makes double its budget back. It plays very well overseas. Believe it or not, by all accounts, Coscarelli didn't even use all of the $3 million. He ended up, I think, coming in almost like $150,000 under budget which is a big deal, especially when you're making movies with other people's money. Phantasm 2 is a bit of an oddity now because it feels like a bit of a false start. It directly concludes the events of Phantasm and basically almost has a cliffhanger ending, which leads into Phantasm 3 Lord of the Dead, which wouldn't be made by Universal because even though this movie made a bunch of money, Coscarelli had decided at that point that, yeah, it was nice to have $3 million and to be able to blow up houses and have a much bigger budget. But at the same time, he lost control of what exactly his property was. And he had a lot of things that had to be mandated. Now, there's always been these rumors that this movie, because it's a gruesome movie, it really is. Uh, There's, you know, gore and all kinds of stuff. The MPAA didn't have a problem with almost anything in the movie except for one scene. And it's when one of the balls comes directly, goes into the actor's head and squirts out blood. Now, this same thing had happened in the first movie and the MPAA had a problem with it that time too. You know, the ball coming directly at the actor's head and then squirting out blood towards the camera. There's all kinds of shit that happens in this movie. You get to see people embalmed, people blown, all kinds of shit. But for one reason or another, they did not like the idea of that sphere burrowing into someone's head. They just were freaked out by it. They could get away with anything else. Luckily, at that point, Coscarelli had made friends with the parental advisory board for the MPAA. And they said, you know what? We don't have any problems except for that one scene. And he said, you guys said the same thing about the first movie. You're like, we did? It's like, yeah. He's like, oh, okay, well, don't worry about it. So they trimmed, like, I think two or three seconds out of that sequence. But other than that, Phantasm II largely remains the film that it was. It's not like there were a lot of things edited. I think where the miscommunication came out, especially with horror magazines at the time, was... This movie was largely tampered with by the MPAA. 
And that's not the case. It's not a censoring thing. The real problem that Don Coscarelli had was with Universal. They wanted certain things, and he basically had to provide it. Now, ultimately, what this is really all about is that you get the money that you want. You get the distribution you want. You get the special effects. You get the whole thing. But you lose control over your own property. Now, luckily... There was a period of time that Universal would be able to make another sequel to Phantasm. But luckily, because his friend, who was the attorney that worked for Universal at the time, Coscarelli had some things put into the contracts so that the rights would revert back to him if Universal decided not to make a sequel. Don't forget, the year after this is 89, And Batman, Tim Burton's Batman, changes the entire landscape of cinema. And everybody, you know, things start to change. We start getting into the the period of Universal Studios where they're more interested in making Jurassic Park and not exactly movies with spheres that burrow into people's skulls, as was the fashion of the day at the time. The whole world of cinema was going to change. And to be perfectly honest with you, even though the film was well-received and made money, ultimately... Universal really didn't want to make Phantasm 3. So the rights went back to Coscarelli. Say another five years later, he makes Phantasm 3 Lord of the Dead, and he does it independently. And it works out, and he continues to make these films. You can go to phantasmmovies.com, and you can find out much more, because it's one of these rare occurrences where it's not like Wes Craven and New Line Cinema, Like, Coscarelli owns the rights to all these movies because the only one that was made through a major studio was the second movie. Now, it's kind of fudged up some things. They've done some incredible box sets, but the lion's share of money is when they have to pay the rights to Universal so that they can include Phantasm II in a box set, in a multi-DVD or Blu-ray set. So it's kind of one of these things that one time that this guy decided to work with a major studio all these years later, like, yes, it was a great opportunity and it brought the series forward. But ultimately, that $3 million that Universal paid to make Phantasm 2, Don Coscarelli spent a lifetime paying it back. And that's the moral of the story, folks. You might be able to get what you want. But what price will it cost you? And hey, look, we got a great movie. It's a different movie. It's not the first Phantasm. This is much more kind of in the action science fiction. There's a lot more gore. We got a lot more special effects because we've got the budget to do it. When you're working on a movie that costs 10 times the amount of the original, you got some wiggle room to make a very interesting film. And that's kind of exciting until they tell you to keep changing everything. Because ultimately, that's what happens. When you decide to allow a major motion picture studio to budget your film and ultimately end up kind of co-opting and co-owning what you've created, the money men always have the final say. I think it didn't turn out all too bad. But it's definitely an experience that Coscarelli learned from because after this he goes and he makes like three four more phantasm movies all independent 
never have that kind of money to play with again. But you know what? He got to make the movies he wanted and got to do it his way. And that, folks, is the moral of the story. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Done the best I could. Was feeling very ill. Almost didn't get through it. Got really sick. But through the power, through the grace of God, the tall man, whatever you want to call it, we made it through another episode. And this is the penultimate episode. Next episode is the final one. And what are you going to do then? You know, when you get to the last one, you got no more offering. I don't know. Find me on social media. Support me. Should I start a Patreon? What is a Patreon? I don't know. Tweet at me, at Jerry Hara, Instagram, Twitter, Letterboxd. I have questions. I have queries. Can you answer them? I don't know. I just don't fucking know. But regardless, I hope you've been enjoying this trip back to 1988 with me. And hopefully we can go on some new and exciting adventures very soon. I'm Jerry Hara. This has been The Offering. Mostly horror, always genre. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Pugh. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offer. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.